Well, good morning. Am I on? You guys can hear me? Okay. All right. Boy, I really feel like I'm towering over you guys, man. This is like, wow, you little people sit there. And <laughs> so uh, thank you, Gary, for just as uh, words of introduction. Uh, let me just first say how delighted I am to be with you all this weekend. Um, I have come uh, to really appreciate uh, your pastors, uh, in particular uh, Gary and Nam, as we've gotten uh, a chance to spend some time together. Uh, particularly some of you guys were exposed to the uh, little videos that we did. What was that, last year? I think it was. And so we spent time together getting to know each other. And I have just grown fond of these brothers uh, as uh, partners in the gospel ministry. But even in some senses, more importantly, just as friends, uh, I appreciate them, their ministry. I appreciate this church. And uh, so we're really thankful to be here. We had planned on being here on last year, and it was just interesting, as Gary mentioned earlier, that um, I was just about to call him because it was really in the height of uh, COVID. I was thinking, I'm a little uncomfortable coming. And then he called, I think, a day before I was going to call him and said, you guys had canceled for last year. But in God's providence, uh, here we are. So we're grateful uh, for that. Some of you heard on last night that I was intending on bringing my whole family, or at least some of my family. My son TJ is with me, and I was going to bring my wife and my daughter. And my daughter had a little accident this week and uh, broke her femur. And uh, she's at home. She had a surgery on Thursday night, and so she and my wife are at home. So they send their regards. We spoke with them this morning, and they wanted us to wish you all well this weekend and uh, trust that you all are praying uh, for them. So thank you for allowing me to share this time with you. Uh, Let me just pray, and uh, then we will open God's word together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for, again, the privilege that we have to be Um, together this weekend um, to share time in fellowship. Thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord God, for 25 years of your favor upon their lives and their ministry, the impact that these brothers and sisters have had on so many others' lives in their faithfulness to the gospel and to Christ. And we pray then, Lord God, that this would be a sweet time of fellowship and encouragement this weekend, particularly in our times around your word We do pray, Father, that you would gird up the loins of our minds and grant us the grace to think your thoughts after you. Help us, Lord God, to press into this all-important topic of suffering, that we can grow in our understanding that you are sovereign over it all and that you mean it for your own glory and for our good. And so I just pray for those particularly, Lord God, who are experiencing deep sufferings, even as I speak now, Lord, that you would, through your spirit and your word, minister to our souls and our hearts. Comfort us, Lord, with your grace. And cause us, Lord God, to fix our hope upon Christ, who is our Lord, our Savior, and our King. And so we thank you, Lord, even in advance for all that you're going to do in our times together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my aim for this session, I mentioned this a little bit on last night. My aim for this session is to lay a foundation for the whole weekend by building a case for the sovereignty of God over suffering. Now, I know that this is a well-taught church. I know these are uh, issues that you have not thought before, that your pastors have not uh, preached on uh, before. So I'm hoping that what we uh, discover and what we talk about here this weekend isn't so familiar to you that you won't be able to glean some new truths and it won't be uh, helpful for you. So we've oftentimes talked about suffering uh, and we've oftentimes obviously talked about the sovereignty of God. But I want to bring those two things together to help us really understand that our suffering really does fall under the sovereignty of God and that God in his sovereignty has purposes and designs in our suffering that are for his glory and for our good. Now, that's easier said than done, particularly when you're in the midst of suffering. We don't always feel that way. We may know that notionally, but we don't always feel that way. So I'm hoping just to lay this foundation. And so I want to just to take a broad perspective uh, from the Bible with the hope that we can all have a renewed sense of faith in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God that will sustain us when we suffer and when those around us whom we love uh, also suffer. Or maybe I could put it another way and I could I'd say it like this. I want to hold up before us what I'm calling a big God theology of suffering so that we can rest in the arms of a loving father who only sends into our lives things that are good for us, even though they might be painful. 
And that's a big statement, you guys. And I recognize you guys. I don't approach this flippantly. Uh, I realize that probably in a room this size that there are all kind of things, all kind of pain that some of you are even in right now or maybe just coming out of. And if I can say this, what my, my grandmother used to tell me, that if you're not going through difficulties, you're either coming out of difficulties or preparing to go into difficulties, right? So all of us, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, have either experienced something very uh, difficult in your life or you are experiencing something difficult in your life or there may be difficult times just around the corner for us. Now, the topic of suffering obviously resonates with us all. We're living in the middle of a global pandemic that has touched millions of lives and have brought the reality of suffering to the forefront of everybody, right? And we were kind of, in some senses, a year and a half ago, just coasting along, right? We were coasting along. Nobody was thinking about, you know, just at, at this stage, suffering. And then all of a sudden, the whole entire world, in some senses, was brought to its knees, Right, because of a global pandemic, and people who have maybe never thought about suffering very acutely were forced to think about it. Right, we're forced to really think about like what is going on here? How do I process this? Uh, What are the categories that I need to have in my mind and in my heart in order to make sense of what's happening right now? And that's just a small example uh, of the reality of suffering. But even apart from the pandemic that we're living through, right, there's just the various vicissitudes of life that remind us on a regular basis that our world is broken, that our world is fallen. And as Christians, we recognize uh, very quickly, right, that we have not reached the new heavens and the new earth, right? We're still living under the curse of God, and it impacts us all. And contrary, quite frankly, to a certain brand of Christianity, and I call it a brand of Christianity because it's not really Christianity, this whole thinking that somehow or another when you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, that all of your problems will go away, right? If you just have enough faith that somehow or another you're just going to breeze through this life, and that is false, that is heresy, All of us know just by experience, let alone just by the teaching of the word of God, that even though we have a robust faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that problems still come our way. Pain is still a part of our portion. Suffering will knock on our doors in many ways throughout your journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is then, how do we think about those things? How do we view God in the midst of our own personal pain? How do I make sense of my, my, my precious little Julia with special needs falling off a chair and breaking her femur and winding up in the emergency room and having to have two titanium uh, pins put into her hip and now laying in a cast for the next two weeks not being able to move? How do I process that? Do I get mad at God? Do I think that God is punishing her and punishing us? Or do I have a theology that is big enough to handle that and still recognize that in the midst of the pain that I might be going through, God is still yet good, God is still yet kind, and God has purposes for that suffering that I might not even be able to see right now, but I can trust him and I can glorify him in the midst of it, knowing that he's a good and loving God. And everything that he either sends into my life or permits to come into my life and yours, I can glorify him in the middle of it because it means it for my good and for his glory. And so we want to think together about that. I want to be thinking about our pain and our tears and our sickness and our brokenness and our our mourning and our death. But we want to be thinking about it under the sovereign rule of a loving and a kind and a gracious and a powerful God. So how do we then understand massive suffering and evil in the world that comes into our lives and yet still maintain our joy and a robust faith in a good and sovereign God? Now, as a pastor, I'm close to suffering or to the suffering of many people. I have both the profound privilege and the pain of walking alongside of individuals who suffer, as I'm sure your pastors can say the same thing, and some of you have as well. I just want to just mention a a quick example, and this is a family in my church about three years ago, and I asked permission uh, to share this. You all wouldn't know who they were, but it's a husband and a wife. Uh, They have two daughters uh, in our family, and uh, they got a call on a Friday uh, that the wife's brother was gunned down on a freeway not too far from here in broad daylight. 
And so they were rushing to the hospital, Irvine uh, Medical Center, and they called the pastors and we met them there. And uh, the brother died there. Uh, This was a random shooting, random, we would say, uh, but it was actually a gang initiation that somebody just was getting initiated into the gang and needed to kill somebody. And so they shot uh, one of our members, brother, and he died on the scene. That's profound suffering. And even as a pastor, I found myself coming up short. Uh, I'm there in the room uh, with the family. There's cops all over the place and the family is crying. You can almost imagine just the hysteria, just, I mean, just pain and brokenness. And they look to me to say, Pastor, could you give us a word from the Lord? Brother Gary and Brother Nam, just tell you, seminary did not prepare me for that one. But it's suffering. It was real. It was, it was tangible. And so they buried their brother. Now, As a result of the brother being murdered, their mother, you can imagine, just was just was racked with grief and pain to the point that it caused her to go into the hospital. And I'd like to tell you that she recovered from it, but she didn't. Three weeks later, she actually died. I would actually say she died from a broken heart, but she never recovered. Now, a month later, The husband of this wife, whose brother was murdered and whose mother's died, he got a call, and I'm not making this up, he got a call from his sister. His father just confessed to his sister that he murdered his wife, their mother, and that he was going to the police station to turn himself in, and he told the sister, who is now informing her brother, that their mother's body was still in the house. And so this son, whose wife just lost the brother and the mother, goes to his parents' house to have to climb through the window only to find his mother dead because his father killed his mother. And so we get a phone call. Hey, pastors, this is going on. This was all on the news. It happened in Compton. And me and my co-pastor, we get there. And again, we walk up to this horrendous scene of pain and suffering that's almost unimaginable. Now, this all happened, you guys, within a span of two and a half months to one family. How do you get past that? How do you think about that? How do you process that? You have faith and trust and hope in God, and you believe that God is good and God is faithful, and all of that happens to you all at once. Now, I know that that's an extreme case, but I only point that up to say that if you do not at that moment have a robust faith. You are done. You're done. The best of us, we're done. And by God's grace, this family is still standing strong by the grace of God in their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. Has it been easy? It has not been easy at all. It has been difficult. They have times of, of, of deep lament and, 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 and pain, and yet they're still trusting in a good and sovereign God. And I'd like to think that, that the reason that they do that is because they have a, a, a solid foundation to stand upon where they can put this kind of pain in a position where they understand God was sovereign over it all. And so I raise that not to pull on your heartstrings. But I raise that just to remind us that our world is, in fact, broken in really, really difficult, difficult, painful times come into our lives, even as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that in the midst of that, God is still good. God is still gracious. God is still loving and God is still sovereign. And we want to have then our feet planted firmly in the soil of his sovereignty so that we can understand those kinds of occurrences in our lives. So what I want to do this morning is, if you're taking notes, I want to give us five statements, five statements about suffering and God's sovereignty that I believe are necessary pillars to a solid understanding of suffering according to the Bible. So these are five pillar statements that will hold up a foundation for us that we can stand when suffering comes our way and we can understand it under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God, okay? Five pillar statements about suffering and God's sovereignty that will help us stand when pain comes into our lives. So statement number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Statement number one, suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. 
Suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. Now, I recognize that that's not a profound statement. Still, it is necessary to start with because if we don't have this basic truth, human suffering will always seem strange to us. Suffering will, will, will seem like something odd to us if we don't start with that basic truth that this is a God-ordained consequence of living in a broken world. We will be trapped if we don't understand this in a philosophical problem about God's goodness, God's power, and human suffering. Some of you know the word theodicy. How many of you guys are familiar with that word theodicy? It's really trying to figure out that if there's a, a good God and that if he's all-powerful, how do we explain evil? Right. And many people, particularly unbelievers, have raised that question that that if your God is so good and he's all powerful, like you say, how do we explain evil? Well, we have the answer to that. And part of the answer to that is, is that suffering is as a result of the ordination of God, that it would happen in a fallen and broken world. And I just want to tease that out and remind us of that. So with your Bibles open or your phones on or your iPads on. Meet me in Genesis chapter one. This, of course, obviously is review for you all, but it will be helpful for us to see this. And simply the statement is just simply this, that we need to understand and refresh our minds that uh, that we have a sovereign God who created a moral universe with built in consequences for both obedience and disobedience. Let me say that again, that our God is a sovereign God who created a moral universe with built-in consequences for both obedience and disobedience. And that will help us as we begin our time together. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3, that's where we want to be just for a moment there. You guys know the story. It's the record uh, in our Bibles of God's creation. We know that God created the heavens and the earth within the span of of six days. He created everything that we know before uh, the creation. There was nothing and God created everything ex nihilo out of nothing. And all things were created by him, by the power of his word. And just a couple of texts I just want to point us to. I look at verse 31 of chapter one in Genesis. It says, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Right. So at this moment in creation, everything that God made was you say it. Very good. So I give you guys permission to talk back to me. That's really good, right? It was very good. So there is no suffering at the point of God's creation. No suffering at all. Not even the hint of suffering because everything that God made was very good. No suffering at this point. So God's original design, there was no suffering. There was to be no pain, no evil, no hardship, uh, no despair, nothing. Everything that God created originally was in fact very good. But then as we move into chapter two, which is the record of God's creation of both male and female man, which was the sixth day as he created that we have that teased out for us there in verses 15 through 17. Let me read that and pay attention there. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but, notice verse 17, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, or in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, at this point, suffering is not actual, but it is potential. You guys pull that out of that logically. It's not actual, but it's potential. God says that everything that I've made is good, but I put you, I put you, Adam, and then Eve, and then all of the creatures that would come from them in the garden as my representatives. You will represent me here on earth by taking dominion of my creation. But if you disobey me, suffering will be your portion. So it's not actual at this point. It's potential at this point. And then we come down into chapter three, and you are very familiar what happens to chapter three. We have cosmic rebellion at that point where Adam and Eve choose to go their own way, disobey God, and God's promise of the potential of suffering now becomes experiential. It becomes a reality, and suffering enters in to God's creation by virtue of his ordination of it, but it is as a result of man's disobedience. Did you guys catch that? So God's creation was good. It was pristine. Everything was, was well, but potentially suffering can come in as a result of man's disobedience, and that's exactly what happened. I won't take the time to 
read it all. You all are familiar with chapter three, particularly verses 14 down to 19, where God curses the serpent. God curses Adam. God curses Eve. God curses creation. Right. So Satan gets cursed. Man gets cursed. Woman gets cursed. Creation itself gets cursed. It is now under the judgment of God because of man's disobedience and all of the suffering happens as a result of that. And then when you turn in your Bible from chapter three into chapter four, you began to see the outworking of the suffering and the pain that was caused by man's disobedience. And from chapter four all the way to Genesis chapter 19, almost on every page of the Bible, there is suffering. There is pain. There is hardship, there is death, there is destruction as a result of the consequences of man's disobedience. That's the world that we live in. That's the world that we live in. It is broken, but it is broken because God ordained that there would be consequences to our disobedience. And so Romans, and I'm going to be all over the place, you guys, and you guys can turn to these passages if you like. Romans Chapter 5, verse 12, I know you guys covered this and you guys have been going through Romans where it says, Paul writes, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death and everything associated with death, the pain and the mourning and the weeping and the hardship, everything happened as a result of one man's sin. And because of one man's sin, all sin, and we are all thus guilty of that sin, and therefore all of us are subject to suffering. But again, it's because God designed a moral universe that way. And so please understand, the suffering that happens was not outside of the purview of the sovereignty of God. God ordained an environment in a world in which we can understand danger and disease and disasters and destruction and decay and death as they wreak havoc on the earth as being ordained by God because of our disobedience. Now, that statement has to be woven into the fabric of our Christian theology so that we're not stunned and surprised by what we see in this world. We have a category for that. You have an answer uh, to give to your coworker or your fellow student on the job, and it inevitably happens when there's some kind of massive disaster, whether it's 9/11 or whether it's COVID-19 or whether it's it's uh, Hurricane Ida. When they come to you and ask you, like, "Where is your God?" when all of this happens, and our answer is, our God is where He's always been, on His throne, reigning and ruling, and He ordained a moral universe, and we see these things as a result of our own disobedience. And God is sovereign over that. So number two, and we're building you guys on these pillars. Number two, suffering then is never outside of God's ultimate control. Okay, suffering is never outside of God's ultimate control. And so the first statement is that God ordained that that there be consequences in his moral universe of disobedience. But this statement then takes a step further to say that even though God ordained the suffering, it doesn't mean that he ordained the suffering and somehow or another stepped aside. And he's just in heaven watching it happen. And he's kind of wringing his hands going, oh, I wish they had not disobeyed me. Look at what happened to my creation. Woe is me. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is ultimately in control, even of the suffering that he ordained that would happen as a result of our disobedience. And I want to tease that out for us a little bit. So if you guys want to turn and you're in the book of Romans, turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I just want to point this is monumental statement by the Apostle Paul. It's just staggering the, 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 the. The, the depth and the breadth of this statement that he makes at the end of this chapter. And you guys know this. You've been working through Romans. And Paul has been teasing out just the gospel of God. He's standing amazed at how, how, how great God is in terms of the salvation. How is it that uh, Jews are disobedient and God has grafted in the Gentiles and they are now the covenant people of God? And how can God use the disobedience of the Jews to bring salvation to the world and that the Jews at some point are going to look upon him that whom they pierce and they're going to 
to be brought back into it. And Paul is just stunned. And he says this beginning in verse 33. All oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has given him counsel or who has first given to him that which uh, might be paid back to him. And then this statement for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And it's okay for you guys to say amen to that. It's a profound statement. I call this I call this the divine triangle of sovereignty. Yeah, think about it. So just think about this statement for from him and through him and to him. Paul says are how many things? All things. Right. He builds he builds a triangle for from God down and through God and to God are all things. So Paul is just saying this. He just gets to a place where he just bows to the ultimate sovereignty of God. And he says that everything is from God and through God and to God ultimately, whatever it is. In other words, there's nothing outside of that, nothing outside of from God, through God and to God. And brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that suffering is in that divine triangle. That God is sovereign over it all. He's just not passively observing it because it came into his creation and ruined it. And he's just waiting until the end time when he corrected it all. No, he superintends it. He orchestrates it all for his own glory. All of it is under his divine sovereignty. So whatever form of suffering, the Bible squarely places that suffering under the ultimate control of God. And let me just give us a couple of examples of this. So when you think about categories of suffering, whatever form they may come in. So, for instance, you think about satanic suffering. Satan causes a lot of suffering in the world, right? He does. He causes all kind of suffering. So in some of these passages we're going to come back to throughout this weekend. So in, in Job chapters 1 and 2, most of us are familiar with that, right? You have this, this amazing conversation, right, happening between Satan and God. And, and God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job, right? And very oftentimes we look at the suffering that happens between uh, Satan and Job. And we also, and, and very oftentimes we say, look at what Satan does. But you got to go back further and realize that who initiated the whole thing? God did. God is the one that said to Satan, have you considered, literally, have you set your mind upon my servant Job? So the initiator of that whole episode of what happened was God. And God is the one who gave permission to Satan to go after Job. And God is the one that set parameters around Satan, that Satan can go no further than the parameters that God set. So at the end of it, it was, it was Job that said what? He lost his, he lost his resources. He lost his good. He lost his he lost his servants. He lost his house. He lost his cattle. He lost his children. And at the end of it all, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, who was it that took away his goods and his servants and his houses and his kids? When you read it, it seems like Satan did that, right? But. Job had a very robust, big God theology of suffering. And the next verse says, and again, we'll come back to some of this, that Job did not sin with his lips, nor did he place any blame on God. Job had the right kind of theology to understand what took place in his life. Even though Satan's hand was on it, He went above and beyond Satan to see the one who is in sovereign control of all things. And so he could say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. So even satanic suffering is underneath the sovereign control of almighty God. What about natural suffering, natural disasters and disease and plagues and storms and floods and and uh, the lack of food, all those kinds of things? The Bible clearly, squarely places that under the sovereignty of God. We won't turn there, you guys. If you get a chance, read Psalm 78, which is just a recording just of the, of the, of the history uh, of the Israelites. And every single thing that happened to the Israelites, it just said, God did this, God did this, God did this. 
God sent the locusts in Egypt. God sent the storm. God sent the rain. God sent the drought. God did all of those things. So all of the suffering that we see from natural disasters are underneath the sovereignty of God. The storm, the hurricane, Ida, was under the sovereignty of God. Not one drop of rain that fell was outside of the sovereign will of God. Providential suffering, what I call, what we would put under the category of accidents, are ultimately no accident. God, the Bible would say that it comes from God. Proverbs 16.33, you guys can write that down. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We don't draw lots and cast lots anymore, but we can say this, that uh, man rolls the dice, but where the dice land are under the sovereignty of God. So when you guys are playing Monopoly and (laughs) you need those double sixes to land on boardwalk so you can buy it, the Bible would say that's God. But even more importantly, when the car careens off the side of the road and hits the little girl who's holding the hand of her father, and we would say that's an accident, the Bible would say it's under the sovereign control of God. Nothing is outside of his control. Judicial suffering. Judicial suffering is like Genesis chapter 6, when when God just judges the world or judges a part of the world, the great flood. Uh, You guys could read that on your own. You know the story. That was God's doing. God does, in fact, judge sometimes. He doesn't always communicate to us when he does that. We're not like the prophets of old that he speaks to that way to tell when that is. We don't know what this is. By the, by the way, can I just maybe give us an encouragement? Guys, be careful about theologizing about when you know that God is actually judging in a certain way. We don't always know that. So just be careful about saying, oh, look, God judged, right? And typically we always do that about the pain that somebody else is going through, right? So just be very careful. We know that God, in fact, can judge people and communities and whole nations. He has done it in the past. There's no reason for us to think that he doesn't do it now and he won't continue to do that. But he doesn't tell us when when that happens. But God, in fact, does that. Disciplinary suffering. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. You guys can turn there uh, when you get an opportunity and read that. And that's the suffering that comes from our loving father who for his own purposes and for his own design, for our good and for his glory, for our maturity and for our growth in in grace, he can bring pain into our lives. It doesn't mean that necessarily that we've done anything wrong. It's just training for us to grow in godliness. And it is painful. In Hebrews chapter five, the author says this in verses five through seven. And I'll just pick up maybe in verse uh, uh, seven. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. And that kind of discipline is not always pleasant. And for the moment, it is hurtful. In verse 11, it says this, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God is in control of that. God disciplines, even with pain and suffering, his own children. He's in control of that. Consequential suffering. And these are just some categories that I just come up. There are many more. Consequential consequential suffering is suffering from living in a moral universe where God said, whatsoever you sow, that you shall what? Reap. Right. And sometimes the suffering that happens to us is because we just made bad decisions. Right. Bad choices. Right. You make really bad health decisions and choices. Guess what happens to you later on in life? You get sick. Right. And God is in control that God is sovereign of that because God made a a universe where if you put bad things into your body, it's going to damage your body and then bad things are going to happen to your body. God is in control of that as well. Christian suffering. And when I say Christian suffering, I mean just simply suffering for the gospel. Suffering for righteousness sake. Philippians 1 uh, says this, that it has been ordained for you. It has been given to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer in his name. 
right? Gift. It is a gift of God's grace. Not only to believe, we believe in the sovereignty of God in terms of believing. And the text says there that we also have to believe in God when it comes to our suffering. It is a gift. If we live with Jesus Christ and we desire to reign with Jesus Christ, we will also have to suffer with Jesus Christ. And that's ordained by God. Proverbs 16.4 says this, that the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. That speaks to God's ultimate sovereignty, even over wicked people who do harmful things and bring suffering into people's lives. Since God made that. He's not responsible for the evil, but he ordains it and he's sovereign over it. Listen to Jeremiah as he spoke in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 to 38. In profound suffering of his people, he says this, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? That's a profound statement. And that idea of good and ill, tov is the Hebrew for good, uh, um, ra is, is the word, and it has a shade of meanings, but it can even be translated evil. And so, so Jeremiah understood that both good and evil ultimately are under the sovereignty of God. Although God is never responsible for evil, he superintends it and controls it for his own good and for his own purposes. And Jeremiah understood that, and each and every one of us must understand that as well. According to the Bible, suffering is not random. It is not guided by some dualistic force competing with God. But God is over it all. Even the suffering that you're going through right now. God is in absolute control of it. Which leads us to our third statement. That suffering is not only permitted by God, but is also meant by God. That's a really important statement. Let me read it again for us. That suffering is not only permitted by God, but is also meant by God. Now, oftentimes we hear Christians use the language of permission regarding our pain and our suffering. Right. If we've been taught well and we understand that God is in control, we're a little bit more comfortable with the idea Well, God permitted this to happen. And I'm not saying necessarily that that's wrong per se. But I want us to understand that even his permission is purposeful permission to borrow John's Piper's words that he uses in his book. He's got a big giant book that's about that big, you guys, on providence. I would encourage you guys to get that and maybe read it together. It's like 786 pages. So to take you, if you read it's about as fast as I do, about three years to get through it. Uh, but it's helpful. He uses that language purposeful permission. That is to say that even though God permits things to happen, he permits things to happen by purpose, right? That he's not just passively watching things happen and then trying to respond after the fact to make a bad situation better. But if he permits something to happen, he has already made the decision to to allow it to happen, which means that he's in control of permitting it to happen. Does that make sense? So it doesn't remove him from being the initiator of it happening because he could have, because of his control and authority, stopped it from happening. And it's important for us to understand it. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to try to get God off the hook by saying he permitted something to happen versus he ordained and caused something to happen. And I want us to see that that it is God And so, again, you guys, I want you to just turn back to Joel. We've already introduced it, but I want us to just park it here for a moment or two so we can see this together. Job chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you set your heart on my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. 
Then Satan uh, answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And then you remember the rest of the story. And again, all I want to do is tease out here, you guys, is this. God initiated this encounter between Satan and Job. It was God who pointed Satan's attention to Job. It is God who set the parameters around Job and gave, yes, Satan permission, but it was under his authority and under his sovereignty. I can't remember who said this. And maybe it was Martin Luther that said, Satan is God's Satan. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that, but it is true. Satan belongs to God and God uses Satan. God uses Satan very often to bring pain and suffering in our lives. And he does so for his purposes. He means to do something. And as he permitted this to happen, he had purposes in it happening for his own glory. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Let me point this out from the life of Paul in chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is defending his apostleship and he's writing to believers and he records a time when he was caught up into the third heaven and given profound privileges. And he says this in verse 7, he writes this in verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason. Notice this, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We'll come back to this later on uh, in another session. But what I want you guys to see here is, is that there was something given to the apostle Paul, namely a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan. And the question is, who gave it to him? Now, the text doesn't say, does it? Guys, that wasn't a rhetorical question. That was a real question. The text doesn't say, right? It said, was given to me, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. But the text doesn't say who gave it to him. But it suggests, and I would argue pretty strongly, that the person that gave it to him was God. Because the purpose in the messenger of Satan given to him to torment him was to keep him from exalting himself, right? And that's never Satan's purpose in our life is not to keep us from exalting ourselves. What does Satan want to cause us to do? To exalt ourselves, right? So who is it that wants to keep us humble? That's God. So what Paul is saying here is that God is the one who actually gave me a thorn in my flesh and it came to me from Satan or messenger of Satan and it tormented me. But it was purposeful. God meant it. God designed it for a reason in my life. That's what I want to press upon you guys to understand that God allows and permits and sends pain in your life, but it doesn't come without a purpose. There is a grand design in it all. God is doing something in your life when he sends pain into your life. If you're sitting here this morning and there's pain in your life and there's suffering, maybe it's situational Maybe it's physical, maybe it's relational, maybe it's financial, maybe it's with your wife or with your children or with a friend or somebody you love. God has design in it. He's working. I know it doesn't feel like it, right? No, no, nobody, nobody signs up to get in the line to, to get more pain, right? If that's the case, you need counseling, right? But the pain that we face, God is sovereign over it. He means it for your good. The monumental statement passage that I have underscored in my Bible, and I trust that you will underscore it as well, is Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph, having gone through everything that he went through. And here's a, here's a statement, you guys. If there was ever a man that could have been bitter, 
Man, it was Joseph, right? Joseph, you guys have maybe heard it preached this way. Joseph was a man in the pits. He went from one pit to another pit to another pit to another pit to another. And it was never his fault, right? It was never because he made bad choices or, right? Joseph, jo- it's interesting. Joseph may be the only other individual, with the exception of maybe uh, Melchizedek, that, that, that there aren't any sins presented in Joseph's life. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. But he's not presented as a character that has flaws. Although he was, he was kind of whiny, a little bit, right? <laughs> but everything that happened to him was as a consequence of somebody else doing it to him. If there was ever a case of unjust suffering, it was Joseph. And if there was ever a person that could have raised his hand and looked at God and said, why is this happening to me? Why is all this meaningless pain being brought into my life? Why am I going through this? What did I do to deserve this? How can this be? Joseph certainly could have said that. But he says, and it's recorded for us in Genesis 50, 20, he's speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery that started the whole chain of his suffering. He said, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. Right. In other words, your intentions for throwing me in that pit and selling me. Right. Was for evil purposes. You meant it. You 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 designed it that way. Your intentions were for evil against me in my life. And then immediately this is the way that our Bibles read. As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. I just want to stop right there. Right. Hey, it, Joseph doesn't say, it doesn't say God permitted it for good. It doesn't say God responded so that it would work out for good. He, he puts God's sovereignty right square in the face of the reasons for why his brothers did what they did. Right? That, that, that goes a little bit further back than Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together, right? The, the causation is after the fact. You guys understand, right? Causing something like, okay, this happens and God causes it to work together. This is before that. This is an intention. In other words, God was sovereign in the intention. God was working through the intentions of the brothers and the evil design that they had in the suffering of their brother. God was at work in that and God meant it. For good, so that, so that, or in order that, to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That's staggering. God not only permitted it, but God planned it. That's what the word meant means. It means to plan, to devise. God is not a permissive responder, but he is an active initiator. Let's pause here for a minute. Do you believe that? Are you convinced that when you suffer, when you have suffered, that God designed it for you, tailor-made for you with glorious purposes? That's a hard one. That's, that, that, that's a challenging one. That's, if, we, if we're honest, you guys, uh, that, that, that's a real challenge. When you get a pink slip at the office, right, having just purchased your first home <laughs> with a mortgage looming over your head and you're laid off, will you believe that God means that and has designed that? to come into your life and he's sovereign over it. When the diagnosis for your firstborn or secondborn child is not favorable, it's not what you expected, will you be able to say with Joseph that God meant this for my good? I've been there. I sat with my wife Many years ago, TJ, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, at Kaiser Cadillac. I remember it like it was yesterday. Having had a biopsy and waiting for the results. And our doctor told us to go sit in his office and he'd be right there. And there was a folder. (laughs) 
a vanilla folder sitting on this desk, clearly with the results of my biopsy. And we sat there and it seemed like an eternity. Why is he taking so long to come? And every fiber of my being went in to grab that folder and open it up so I could see what was there. And we sat there and he came in and sat down and said, Mr. Kidd, I have bad news that your biopsy came back positive for cancer. I was 44 at the time, and 44-year-old men are not supposed to get prostate cancer. As a matter of fact, I was the youngest prostate cancer patient he had ever seen. And so at that moment, what will I do? What did I do? I did cry (laughs) as I thought about, hmm, prostate cancer. Okay, we can get a surgery, we can get out of me. Typically speaking, men who get prostate cancers normally around 60, 65 have about another 20 years to live. I'm pretty good at math. I counted from 44 to 64. I thought about how old my kids would be. I thought about a whole host of things. But then I had to bring myself back to what I'm talking about today. Did I at that moment believe that God designed this for me and for my family. Because if not, what am I left with? I'm left with facing anger, bitterness, and a struggle with trying to figure out how could God do this to me? And I was mightily helped by remembering the passages that we're looking at right now, that God has a glorious design in this. And I've seen some of those designs in terms of me being able to share with other men who are going through the exact same thing, of being able to be in the hospital room and getting a surgery and being able to share the gospel with my nurse and, and with my doctors about to cut me open. <laughs> Glorious designs. But you got to have a big God theology of the sovereignty of God over suffering to get there, because if not, you'll fall apart. And again, I don't want to suggest that it's not easy. It's tough. But this is the biblical world that God wants us to live in. This is how God wants us to understand our pain and our suffering under his good design. And so that leads us to number four. And then we'll have one more after this and we'll be done. Number four, and we've already hinted at it and suggested it. Suffering is a part of God's sovereign plan for his glory and our good. So if he means it and not just permits it, then he must mean it for a reason. And the reasons that he means it and designs it and sends it and purposefully permits it is for his glory and for our good. And you got to rest there. Even though you might not see it on our next two sessions, we're going to try to see some of those things that God mean for it in our lives. We'll look at 10 of those areas that he means suffering in our lives, but we don't always know what it is. He doesn't always reveal that to us. So it is an act of faith, just believing the record of the word of God that says that if God sins and designs suffering in our lives, he does it for his glory and for our good. And where I want to take us to is Romans 8.28. So now you can turn there and we'll camp here for a moment or two. Paul writes, and these are familiar words, and you guys in chapter 14 now, now, so it's been a while since you guys have been in Romans 8. I'm sure you guys parked it there and rejoiced over these wonderful, wonderful words. One of the greatest chapters, if not the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And and Paul says this, and it is in the context of suffering. He says, and we know, verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And let the church say, Amen. Right. So the the suffering in our lives and and here, you guys, please understand that all things really does have the context and the shade of meaning towards suffering. Romans chapter eight, at least the second half is about suffering. And he is saying that God causes those things to work together for our good. That his design and his purposes are for our good. To help us, to mature us, to grow us. And to bring himself glory. That everything that comes, every ounce of pain, 
that you experience in your life is for your good. And we'll come back to this, but let me just hint at it, you guys. And the good that he means there, you guys, is in verse 29. It is to be conformed into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing in your life. Overarching purpose. If you find yourself confused about the pain in your life, the ultimate answer to the question, Lord, why have you designed this in my life? The ultimate answer to that question is, is because God desires for you to be like his son. And he will do anything and everything necessary in order to produce that. And he will produce that in your life. And father knows best. He really does. He knows the amount of pain. He knows the kind of pain. He knows the length of the pain and the suffering that he needs to have in your life to produce the end result, which is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I sometimes wish that I didn't need so much pain. Apparently, I am really unlike Christ because there's a lot of pain that comes my way. But I rejoice in it. As I hope you rejoice in it. You can be sorrowful and yet still rejoicing at the same time. If, in fact, your greatest desire in your life is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that every single believer here, that your greatest desire is to be like Jesus. Because that's your destiny. That's where we're headed. Every one of you. We're headed to Christ's likeness. Ultimately, salvation is about God redeeming a people to be conformed into the image of his son so that his son might be the firstborn, the prototokos, the preeminent one of brethren and sisters who will imitate him and be like him throughout eternity and will shine to his glory and to his praise. That's where all of us are headed. And God has designed a universe and he uses suffering. Now, if we were making the universe, we probably would design it another way. But guess what? You don't get to make a universe. And everything that God does is not only good, but it is the best. Yes, it is the best. Everything that he does. And so our theology must then squarely be rooted in the fact that he is sovereign and the pain that he designs in our lives are under his authority. So suffering, let me just review this and we'll do our last one and we'll be done. Suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. Number two, suffering is never outside of God's ultimate control. Number three, suffering is not only permitted by God, but is also meant by God. Number four, suffering is a part of God's sovereign plan for his glory and our good. And then number five, suffering suffered death in the suffering and death of Jesus. Say it one more time. Suffering suffered death in the suffering and death of Jesus. And let everybody say, amen. We don't experience that now, right? Because we still suffer. But ultimately, right? Suffering suffered death by the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say that suffering one day will end and it will end because Jesus Christ suffered and died for us. And that's good news. And his suffering and death was the means by which our suffering and our death is transformed into the goodness of God, bringing us to a place we would have never, ever gotten to had it not been for the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Had there not been Christ coming and suffering and dying for us, suffering would have remained, you guys, and suffering would have all been punitive and judgmental and ultimately a climax in our suffering throughout eternity in hell. But because Jesus Christ came and suffered in our place and died in our place, our suffering now is transformed into a means of God's grace by which he builds into us Christ's likeness and ultimately death then is no longer to be feared by us, but it is It is a gateway through which we enter into ultimately Christ likeness and dwelling with God forever and ever. And we owe all of that to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for us. 
Let me just remind us of a couple of texts I'm sure we're really familiar with. Isaiah 53, just to remind us of this. In Isaiah 53, the prophet just writes this. He, speaking of Jesus, was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was it there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was crushed or but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And why did I read that? I read that because we need to be reminded that even though we're suffering, even though we do suffer and will suffer, There has been one who has come before us that suffered in ways that we can scarcely even imagine, who never did anything wrong in thought, word, and in deed. All of his suffering was unjust. He didn't deserve any of it, but he submitted to all of it because he loved us. He loved us. And he, brothers and sisters, because of his suffering, has become the good high priest and the sympathetic high priest. And he is able and willing to enter into your pain with you when you suffer. It's amazing and astounding reality, loved ones, that when you are on your knees under the weight of pain and suffering, you are never alone. And you can feel alone, but by faith you have to believe that you are not alone because there is one who suffered for us in our place and will draw near to you. And we'll bring comfort to you. We'll bring counsel to you. We'll bring his love to you. We'll bring his mercy to you. We'll bring his grace to you. And ultimately, he will remove all the suffering from our lives. And so we run to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 21. And hallelujah for Revelation chapter 21. Let me just read the first four verses there. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Verse four, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And let God's people say, amen. Amen. Suffering will, in fact, end. It has, in fact, been defeated. And now God uses it in our lives for our good and his glory. He is sovereign over it. Even when you don't understand it, he is at work for his glory and for your good. Let's pray together. As we pray, I want to just read a song from William Copper. Some of you will be familiar with it. It goes like this. 
God moves in mysterious, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Father, make plain to us the purposes of the suffering you design in our lives. Thank you that you are sovereign over all things, for from you and through you and to you are all things. To you belong all of the glory and honor. Lord, we pray that you would seal this message to our hearts. We pray, Lord God, that as we meditate upon these truths, that you might sink them deep into our souls, that as we suffer, Lord God, that we wouldn't rage against you, but we would joyfully submit to you, realizing that you are at work in our lives, ever making us and conforming us into the image of your Son, our Savior and King and good High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for our time together. Lord, bless these words to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.